Good afternoon, everyone. There's still a handful of seats, a couple here in the front row if you would like to come up and on the edges. And thank you so much for coming out to make this a standing room only event today. Welcome to Harrisburg's Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Catherine Lawrence, and we're glad you can join us today to take part in this exciting conversation with classics professor Emily Wilson and novelist Madeline Miller. So pleased to have you both here today. We're nearly at the end of our author event series for the fall. By this time next week, all of these chairs will have been taken away and the main floor will be filled again with table displays, the stage two with hundreds of new books for holiday shopping. But before that, and today, we have time for two more author events that I want to tell you about. This Wednesday, November 14th at 7 p.m., we'll be featuring a terrific author and podcast host, Tori Telfer, sharing stories from her new book, Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History. Must see, come to that. And then as well, on next Saturday, November 17th, we'll have another terrific author from The Guardian. The Guardian's Chris McGreal will be discussing his new book on the national opioid epidemic entitled American Overdose, The Opiate Tragedy in Three Acts. He'll be joined that Saturday by WITF's own health reporter, Brett Scholstis, who will make connections between Chris McGreal's national reporting and the opioid epidemic both in our region and throughout the state of Pennsylvania. So we hope you'll be able to come to both those author talks before the store shifts over into tables of books in all directions. Now on to this afternoon's very special event. Emily Wilson is the Professor of Classical Studies and Graduate Chair of the Program in Comparative Literature and Theory at the University of Pennsylvania. In November last year, Norton published her landmark translation of the Odyssey, which amazingly stands as the first complete translation in the English language by a woman. Professor Wilson received her bachelor's and master's degrees at Oxford University and her PhD from Yale. In 2006, she was named a fellow of the American Academy in Rome in Renaissance and Early Modern Scholarship. Conversing with her today will be Madeline Miller, whom you all may remember from uh, her spring visit here. She attended Brown University where she earned her bachelor's and master's degrees in classics. She has taught and tutored Latin, Greek, and Shakespeare to high school students for the past 20 years. The Song of Achilles, her first novel, was awarded the 2012 Orange Prize for Fiction and was a New York Times bestseller. Her second novel, Circe, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller. Both authors now hail from the Philadelphia area, and we are delighted and grateful they've made the trip to speak at the Midtown Scholar today. Please join me in giving them a warm Harrisburg welcome. Thank you so much. We have both been here to this bookstore before, and we were just talking about how excited we are to come back. We love this bookstore, and we love this book-loving crowd, so thank you all for coming out. Um, uh, the first thing I, I want to do, actually, is I want to have um, Emily read a little bit. Uh, if she's okay, I'll, I'll give you a minute to get there. Um, just because I think not only is her writing beautiful, but that's in the Homeric tradition. These things, of course, came out of these poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, came out of oral tradition. That's how audiences would have first experienced them, hearing them from bards, recited. Um, and so I think it is, and you're 
you wrote in such a way that that is absolutely a part of what you were doing. And so I want to hear a little bit of it out loud. So this is, I'm going to read the passage for a, a passage from book 12 of the Odyssey when um, Odysseus and his subordinate men are leaving the island of Circe and they, Circe instructs them about how to get past the dangers they're about to confront, which is the Sirens and Scylla and Charybdis. So it's a sequence in which Odysseus is confronted with three different um, female divinities who are scary because of their mouths and who, who each in different ways are challenging him about whether he's going to be able to be different from the person he was at Troy. The golden throne of dawn was riding up the sky as Circe concluded and she strode across her island. I went back to my ship and roused the men to get on board and loose the sternward cable. Embarking, they sat down, each in his place, and struck the grey salt water with their oars. Behind our dark prowed ship, the dreadful goddess Circe sent friendly wind to fill the sails. We worked efficiently to organize the rigging and the breeze and pilot steered. Then, with an anxious heart, I told the crew, My friends, the revelations Circe shared with me should not be kept a secret, known to me alone. I will share them with you, and we can die in knowledge of the truth or else escape. She said we must avoid the voices of the otherworldly sirens, steer past their flowering meadow, and she says that I alone should hear their singing. Bind me to keep me upright at the mast, wound round with rope. If I beseech you and command you to set me free, you must increase my bonds and chain me even tighter. So I told them each detail. Soon our well-built ship, blown fast by fair winds, neared the island of the sirens, and suddenly the wind died down. Calm came. Some spirit lulled the waves to sleep. The men got up, pulled down the sails, and stowed them in the hollow hold. They sat at oar and make the made the water whiten, struck by polished wood. I gripped a wheel of wax between my hands and cut it small. Firm kneading in the sunlight warmed it, and then I rubbed it in the ears of each man in his turn. They bound my hands and feet straight upright at the mast. They sat and hit the sea with oars. We travelled fast, and when we were in earshot of the sirens, they knew our ship was near and started singing. Odysseus, come here. You are well known from many stories. Glory of the Greeks. Now stop your ship and listen to our voices. All those who pass this way hear honeyed song poured from our mouths. The music brings them joy, and they go on their way with greater knowledge. Since we know everything, the Greeks and Trojans suffered in Troy by God's will, and we know whatever happens anywhere on earth. Their song was so melodious, I longed to listen more. I told my footmen to free me. I scowled at them, but they kept rowing on. Eurylochus and Perimedes stood and tied me even tighter with more knots. But when we were well past them and I could no longer hear the singing of the sirens, I nodded to my men and they removed the wax that I had used to plug their ears and untied me. When we had left that island, I saw a mighty wave and smoke and heard a roar. My men were terrified. Their hands let fall the oars. They splashed down in the water. 
the ship stayed still since no one now was pulling the slender blades. I strode along the deck, pausing to cheer each man, then gave a speech to rally all of them. Dear friends, we are experienced in danger. This is not worse than the time the Cyclops captured us and forced us to remain inside his cave. We got away that time thanks to my skill and brains and strategy. Remember that. Come on then, all of you, and trust my words. Sit on your benches. Strike the swelling deep with oars, since Zeus may grant us a way out from this disaster also. Pilot, listen. These are your orders. As you hold the rudder, direct the ship away from that dark smoke and rising wave and head towards the rocks. If the ship veers the other way, you will endanger us. They promptly followed orders. I did not mention Scylla, since she meant, meant inevitable death. And if they knew, the men would drop the oars and go and huddle down in the hold in fear. Then I ignored Circe's advice that I should not bear arms. It was too hard for me. I dressed myself in glorious armor. In my hands, I took two long spears and I climbed up on the forecastle. I thought that Rocky Scylla would appear from that direction to destroy my men. So we rode through the narrow straits in tears. On one side, Scylla. On the other, shining Charybdis with a dreadful gurgling noise sucked down the water. When she spewed it out, she seethed all churning like a boiling cauldron on a huge fire. The froth flew high to batter the topmost rocks on either side. But when she swallowed back the sea, she seemed all stirred from inside, and the rock around was roaring dreadfully, and the dark blue sand below was visible. The men were seized by fear. But while our frightened gaze was on Charybdis, Scylla snatched six men from the ship, my strongest, best fighters. Looking back from down below, I saw their feet and hands up high as they were carried off. In agony, they cried to me and called my name. Their final words. As when a fisherman out on a cliff casts his long rod and line set round with the ox horn to trip the little fishes with his bait. When one is caught, he flings it, gasping back onto the shore. So those men gasped as Scylla lifted them up high to her rocky cave and at the entrance ate them up, still screaming, still reaching out to me in their death throes. That was the most heartrending sight I saw in all the time I suffered on the sea. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, oh, is that on? Okay. Um, I absolutely love recommending Emily's translation everywhere I go. Um, I think it should be the translation that goes out in all you know, high schools and college and, and anyone who is coming to the Odyssey for the first time. I think it is just the most perfect balance of accessible and so intelligent in the way it's talking to, so brilliant in the way it's, it's talking to the text. Um, so the first thing I, I wanna ask you is what drew you to being a translator. Not all classicists translate. Um, so right. I mean, most, most classicists don't translate. And of course, reading the poem is not the same as producing a literary translation to be published of the poem. Um, I, I, was I was always um, interested in, um, in writing and in trying to make my writing, even if it's prose, as good as I can make it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then I, I was, my, the first translations I was asked to do were of Seneca's tragedies. Mm. And I was really excited to get asked to do a translation project because I knew that was going to be an opportunity to get to, to get to write some poetry and to get to think about um, the, the ways that I could um, create an English that would in some way or other match the style of the original. And that that, that whole process of thinking about a text that I already care about in a literary critical, literary historical way, but then having some kind of active engagement with the, with the text reception seemed really exciting to me. And I didn't know at first like, how much I would enjoy doing it. And I realized after I'd done some of it, that yeah, this is super interesting. <laughs> and it brings out just parts of, parts of my brain that I don't get to use when I'm just writing literary history or yeah. literary criticism. I, I love the way you put that because actually that totally reflects um, what brought me into writing novels yeah. about, <laughs> about <laughs> classics. It yeah. was that same thing, that yeah. impulse of this is a text I love, but I want to interact with it in yeah. a way where, yeah. yeah. Um, so this is, this is the question. I'm sure you've been asked this a, a bunch of times, but um, what drew you to the Odyssey in particular? Um, well, so, so again, I was asked to do this translation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course, that's not why I said yes. And, and I've, I mean, I've loved the text, the Odyssey, for years and years and years. I mean, I guess I, I first interacted with the Odyssey as a little child when I was eight, and I did a, my, a school play version of it. Mm -hmm. My school was doing putting on the play, and I got to be Athena, which is fantastic. <laughs> it's mean. always great to be Athena. Um, and but then I, I started studying Greek in high school, and we read little tiny bits of Homer, and I realized, oh, this is so exciting <laughs> to get to read this poem in the original. And I read it first in in college, and. I guess I've always just been rereading it, and even when I'm not rereading it, just thinking about it. Mm. And it, I've, I find it's a text that's, that's grown with me as I've grown up. Mm. I mean, that it's a text that feels different when you read it when you're eight from when you read it when you're 20 or when you read it when you're, you know, I'm older than 20 now, and, <laughs> and it's changed with me. Mm. I think partly because it's a text that's about um, like being in different homes and whether you're a different, different self at different points of your life, that it seems so smart about parents, children, time, identity, mm. um, community. Mm. Mm. Was there anything as you were working on it that, um, that really surprised you, that sort of jumped out that you hadn't seen before as you were working on the translation? Um, I think I'd, I'd, even though I've, I'd read this poem many, many, many times before, I think I'd very often thought of it in terms of the, the nuclear family, I mean, in terms of the Penelope, the mother, Odysseus the father, Telemachus the son, I sort of thought this is a poem that's primarily about them, and mm. it's about their, how, how does this family get back together again? And I think I really hadn't paid enough attention to all the other members of Odysseus's household, for mm. instance. I mean, all the, all the slave characters. They're so interesting. I mean, the, the depiction both of the quote-unquote good slaves, Eumaeus the swineherd and Eurycleia the old nurse, like what does it mean to be a good slave? Mm -hmm. And then the quote-unquote bad slaves, Melantho and Melantheus, just how carefully that setup is created and how, how essential the slaves are to the, the oikos. That, of course, in archaic Greece, there isn't really such a thing as the family, which is defined just by those who are related. It's, part of the ho it's about the whole household. Yeah. So just how, how, how good the poem is on all the characters who, who aren't those central three. I think I, think I hadn't understood that as clearly as I did in, in going through it for this translation. Mm. I think I heard you say somewhere that... Um, 
that if you, I mean, I, one of the things that I love that you do is, is bringing out some of those slave characters in particular. I think it's easy to forget that, you know, when we're reading the Odyssey, these are all aristocrats that we're dealing with, and then, you know, the slave characters, um, and to sort of forget the, the classic thing about the 12 maids that Odysseus um, has killed towards the end of the poem. And maids was the traditional translation, and you went back to, to female slave, um, but I, which I, I love, and I think is really important mm -hmm. to remember that. Mm -hmm. um, but at some point you had said that if you were going to write a novel about it, that you would choose one of the slave characters. Are, are you really thinking about doing <laughs> that? Oh, I'd forgotten saying that. I'd, I, I remember saying that I thought I'd choose Odysseus's sister. There's one oh. reference to his sister, Ctimene, yeah. and nothing whatsoever is said about her, so there'd be a lot of scope to make things up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, yes, that's another good one. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, there's, al there's already the, the Margaret Atwood Penelopead, which in a way does some of the, the story of the, mm. of the hanged slave women. Um, I think that there would be more one could do with it. One, uh, one could do a novel centered around Melantho, for mm. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who's the, who, who's the, the one of the slave characters, who the slave women who are, who are hanged by Telemachus, who has a name, and who she's also the one who speaks back to Penelope and gets shut up by her. Mm. So it sort of shows you some, some of the complexity of how the poem depicts mm. gender relationships, because it's not that all the women are on the same side. They're absolutely not. Yeah. The elite woman represses the slave character, and then the slave, slave woman gets hanged. So I, mean I kind of love that it's not sort of saying all women are victims. M there are many very, very powerful female characters, including goddesses. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, well, actually, that, that brings us to, to sort of the passage that you read yeah. um, and how oftentimes the, the monstrous characters are women. Um, the, the ones you mentioned, Skill and Charybdis, and the Sirens, of course. Um, Circe is scary in her own way, mm -hmm. um, although she's also helpful. What do you what do you make of sort of making so many of the monsters either women or in the case of the Cyclops other? Yeah, yeah. So there's the 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 two masculine others are the Lystragonians and the Cyclops, who are sort of paired, um, gigantic in size and also different in culture, different in food ways. Because um, <laughs> obviously the Cyclops <laughs> is different in food ways, not just because <laughs> when it's available he eats human, but it's but also he's pastoral and yeah. uh, takes care of the the sheep. So it's, it's about um, the, the encounter between one culture and another. Mm. Um, I think the poem is really anxious, or, or it's just really um, interested in questions about female agency and about what would happen if there were female characters like the goddesses who were as powerful as, as their male counterparts and who had enormous power over um, mortal men as well as over mortal women. Mm. And so when Odysseus is in that between space between Troy and Ithaca, he's in this space where it's dominated by um, powerful female characters, of often goddesses, um, who are who are scary because they're so much more powerful than him. That he's trying to get back to a space where he'll be the most powerful character. Mm -hmm. he, of course, within the household where he's married to Penelope, he is the most powerful character. But in that between space, he's not. And so it's it's. It's more terrifying because the, but the both the helpers and the obstacles, both the both types of character who are, um, he's he's wi with it, he's under the power of these um, beings who are much more powerful than him and are female. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I mean I think I think you can absolutely see that that Cersei is is in particular is so much this this 
incarnation of male anxiety about female power. You know, mm -hmm. that if women have power, men are getting turned into pigs, or if women have power, men are getting eaten by six-headed yeah. monsters. Right. Um, you know, that yeah. it's a very zero-sum way of thinking mm -hmm. um, about it. Uh, and Clytemnestra, who also sort of hangs over mm -hmm. the whole yep. poem, is another one of these terrifying women. She's not a goddess, but, you know, she does murder her husband mm -hmm. in the bath with an axe. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. uh, I want to go back to your, to your writing a little bit. What poets and writers influenced your poetic voice? I think I didn't want it to be too obvious that I've read anything else, because <laughs> I, I, I kind of wanted to make sure that, um, because of course the Odyssey isn't a poem that's looking back and quoting mm -hmm. from earlier mm -hmm. poet literary poetic traditions in the way that Paradise Lost is. I mean, I think actually on the down low, Paradise Lost is a big influence because, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time rereading that English epic as well. Um, but I wanted to both to take something from Milton, but then um, make, it, make it not at all obvious that I've done anything from with Milton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to sort of inject into a Miltonic voice that, that cares about enjambment um, something of the sort of conversationalness of Auden, say, or mm. Frost, or... Browning's um, men and women. But that I wanted there to be a sense that also that it, they could be varied in tone and style. It could even have some some humor like Byron. You know, mm -hmm. that there could be a sort of range of different ways that Homeric verse could sound mm -hmm. while always having this um, really regular predi predictable meter and music. Mm. And who are your sort of following up on that? Who are who are some of your favorite authors to read? Not maybe not influencing you know your writing, but that you just love to read. Uh, <laughs> famous authors. <laughs> or or when or that you loved when you were, you know, a teenager, or that you know was sort of part of your uh -huh. literary building foundation. I, I love reading novels. I mean, I, I I spent a lot of time when I was a teenager reading nineteenth-century novels, and I I still love reading both nineteenth and twentieth-century novels. Yeah. Um, but I'm not I'm not sure that that exactly plays into what I did with the Odyssey because. I'm not writing prose, but maybe on some level it does. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, mean I, I feel like that's the mysterious part. You never know how part. all that. <laughs> yes. um, speaking of 19th yes. century uh, novels, have you read Pachinko, by the way? I, no. I no, highly I recommend it. No. I just read it. I just saw Min Jin Lee talk, and she no. apparently also spent her entire teenage years reading 19th century novels. Ah. Um, this is her version of it. Um, Interesting. So oh, yeah. I'll read it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so if you like that, I think you'd like Pachinko. So how do you... How how do you balance sort of crafting that poetry and, and that voice with the scholarship? Because oftentimes in sort of translation, that has been cast as this, you know, Scylla or Charybdis. You kind of have to tack more one way. You know, you have to go one way or the other. Um, how, did you, how did you balance those two things? Well, I guess that one of the big lessons of the Scylla and Charybdis passage which I just read is that... Wha Whatever you don't think is going to get you is what's going to get you, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's it's very difficult, and just being very conscious about it, you can actually go wrong, right? When you can think, I'm going to get it all right by by joining all the dots and reading all the scholarly commentaries and showing that I understand the syntax perfectly, and then then you can actually go totally wrong about the feel of how does your English sound? Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I definitely I. I'm a classicist, I'm a professor, I wanted to do all my homework. I did all my homework, I'd, but I also felt like um, doing all the homework wasn't, the, wasn't nearly enough, right? That I also had to do a lot of 
reading the original out loud, reading it all again, writing multiple drafts, reading my drafts out loud, um, and not being, not being too rigid about, I think this passage means this, and I, have, I could write a, an article about it, and I've got to make sure that I'm hammering home that point mm -hmm. too much. I mean, I, I need to, to trust that what I've seen in the original is going to emerge through what I write without me having to be always telling you this is what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. I mean, I, I love that description of you also sort of having to be in dialogue with your previous draft. Mm -hmm. And at some point you have to push all the scholarship aside and, you know, it has to stand on its own um, mm -hmm. as, a, as a poetic work, which it absolutely does. Yes. So. Um, was there, were there any particular translations? I'm not asking you to, you know, trash talk anybody, <laughs> but were there particular <laughs> translations <laughs> um, that, that you felt like you were, you wanted to push back against mm -hmm. or, you know, say, kind of make a strong statement against what they were doing? You know, so I, I when I was doing the proposal to try and um, convince the publishers that they definitely, that the world needed another translation, at that stage, I, I mean also trying to, to decide for myself whether I thought it was worth doing, because I wouldn't have done it if I'd thought whatever I do will be more or less the same as this other great one that's already out there. Now that would that would have been a complete waste of five years. <laughs> um, so I'd, I'd, at that stage, I did a sort of survey by reading. I read the Greek of Book Nine, the Cyclops episode, and then I read um, something like twelve different currently available translations of that section. And after doing that survey, I realized I think I can do something that's totally different. There are things that I don't like about the trends in mm -hmm. um, what's out there. And then after that, I just put them all away for five years. I didn't look back at them. Um, but then re uh, recently, I mean, since this has come out, I've done some looking back and comparing. And I feel like what, what I did and the ways it's different are much clearer to me now than they were, well, than they were while I was doing it. Yeah. Um, but so I think I, I, from the start, from that little survey, I realized one thing I don't like is the, the way that there's this tendency, not just with Homer, but with other classical authors too, to translate totally regular verse as, as free verse. Mm -hmm. That of course that's a, a viable, defensible position or thing to do practice, but it's not the only possible thing. And I don't like that that's the only option in many cases. Yeah. So I wanted to use a regular meter. I wanted to bring out, um, much more of the diversity, the diversity of voices, the polyphony of the Odyssey, the diversity of different moods, the different perspectives than I felt was there in a lot of the translations that I looked at. Mm -hmm. I so one reason I, I wanted to look at book nine as an experiment was to see to what extent the translations allow you to see what I think the original does, which is that Odysseus is kind of an unreliable narrator. He's presenting himself as the great guy who came in and met a terrible monster and look how mean the monster was and then see his undeserved suffering thereafter. Um, but of course, the text is also showing you his Polyphemus going about his business, taking care of his sheep very nicely in a very orderly way, worshipping Poseidon, who happens to be his father in a close <laughs> relationship with the gods. Um, and then Odysseus does what people in the Odyssey are not supposed to do, which is go into somebody else's house uninvited. That's disobeying the laws of Xenia, of hospitality. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt that the, the complexity of that, um, the way in which um, Odysseus says the Cyclops people are without the gods, and yet clearly Polyphemus, son of Poseidon, does have access to the gods. So something of that tension was being eliminated in quite a lot of the translations I looked at, for instance, by having Polyphemus be called the monster, mm -hmm. which is not a necessary translation of what the Greek is doing. Yeah. He's, he's, he's described as 
very big in size, but he's not described as in, t in the terms of being a savage mm -hmm. or necessarily being a monster. Yeah, no. um, that was one of the things I, I loved about the translation is, is the titles that you had mm -hmm. um, for, for the chapters, which are you know not in the Greek, but I think are, are a wonderful, provide a wonderful focus mm -hmm. um, as you're reading it. And so the, the title for the Cyclops chapter was um, a, a Pirate in a, in a Shepherd's Cave, mm -hmm. is that right? Yeah. Um, which I, I absolutely love. So let's talk about Odysseus the Pirate for a minute. Because um, nowadays I think people really like, Odysseus has become our favorite hero in all the online stuff. He's always, you know, who's your favorite Greek hero? It's always Odysseus. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people like him because he's sort of seen as the brains versus the brawn, and we're kind of in a brains, you know, with our degrees and our <laughs> office jobs, you know, we're brains. We all like to think we could be Odysseus even if we can't be, you know, God like Achilles um, with our physical prowess. And of course, he has a wonderful wife, so that makes him also sympathetic. Um, but the ancients felt very differently about him. They were much more negative about him, kind of with the exception of the Odyssey, mm -hmm. um, and maybe even including the Odyssey, as mm -hmm. we were just saying. So what do you think about sort of the darknesses in Odysseus's character? There's definitely darknesses. I mean, uh, as you say, of course, you know, the Romans who value um, honesty and uh, integrity so highly had an absolutely negative um, opinion about cruel Od Odysseus. Um, I think the Odyssey is not presenting him as an absolute villain, but it's also certainly not presenting him as everybody should want to be Odysseus. Mm. Um, so Homeric characters always have standard epithets. In the case of Odysseus, he has multiple different epithets, and they usually have to do with his multiplicity. So he's polu mechanos, mm. polu class, polu metis. He's many, 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 and he's to do, it's to do with his many-mindedness, um, many scheming, many stratagems. I think a poem is really interested in um, what does it mean to be multiple? How in what ways is Odysseus multiple and how does that, how is that the, the other side to how he manages to um, come back, t turn back time and be exactly the same self he was 20 years before? That's, part, that's, that's partly to do with how he can always be a different person in every new scenario. And I think the poem is suggesting in some ways that's, that's amazing. And most of us, we may aspire to doing that. But it also is showing us how, um, like what a huge cost that has to everybody else around him, yeah. um, including his wife, but also including all the men with whom he leaves to go to Troy, none of whom come back, yeah. all the men he kills when he comes back, the 12 slave women whom he has Telemachus kill when he comes back. And also the fact that the poem ends not with happy ending, husband and wife are back together, but with, we, ha we learned in line two that Odysseus has just sacked a holy city, i.e. Troy. He comes back, but 24 leaves us with Odysseus killing more people. And it's only when Athena swoops down and says, stop the killing now, the end. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it doesn't le necessarily leave you with a sense of resolution. Ah, oh, this guy is kind of fixed and he's not going to yeah. keep on changing or keep on scheming. Clearly he's going to keep on changing, scheming and torturing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I, one of the things about Odysseus I think that is so interesting is this feeling of, you know, here he is, he's been best of the Greeks after, after Achilles and he's had all these 20 years of adventures He's had extraordinary wealth and fame, and then he's going to go home and herd goats. You know, it seems like that's yeah. probably not going to happen. And right. so it ends on that very interesting destabilized yeah. moment. Um, Jonathan Shea, uh, sort of going into this, um, is a, a psychiatrist who works with Vietnam veterans, and he's written a book called Odysseus in America that talks about how um, a lot of Odysseus' adventures and struggles sort of mirror 
the struggles of some Vietnam veterans coming home from war. And um, he actually, it's a, it's a brilliant book, I highly recommend it. He sort of has the, the Vietnam veterans um, experiences right next to passages from the Odyssey, so you can really see what, you know, the similarities. But he, first of all, about the bad Odysseus, talks about how today Odysseus would absolutely be court-martialed. Mm -hmm. um, he's a terrible <laughs> commander to his men. Um, but also he, he talks about sort of how he exhibits post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. disorder. Right. Um, would, you, would you agree with that in sort of your reading? I would say that he, I mean, people always get nervous when you import all these very modern psychological terms back onto antiquity, but it's not like people in antiquity didn't understand that yeah. after a war, people are different. Yeah. And it's very, very hard to adjust to a new scenario if you've spent you know, e even a few months fighting in a battlefield, let alone 10 years fighting in a battlefield. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely a way that the, po the poem is also just engaged with what would it mean to adjust to being in a different situation? Even just in the passage I just read, Odysseus is used to the idea that the default position when you're faced with danger is put on all your armor yep. and start fighting. Yep. And, he, and obviously, that's not actually the way to defeat Scylla, but he doesn't, he can't, it can't compute yep. that there's some other way that you're supposed to deal with these different challenges that he's being put, being faced with. Yeah. Um, and then similarly, with once he's back in Ithaca, does he actually know what what it would mean? not to be just killing everybody. Mm. And it's not quite clear that he knows that. Mm. He, what he does is wait, 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 as if he's in a Trojan horse, and then get out and kill everybody. Yeah. Um, I love the way you put that. Uh, so um, let's go back to, to women. We've talked about monstrous women a little bit. Now let's talk about sort of the good women mm. um, of it. So one of my favorite passages, I talked about the titles that she uses for each of the books. Um, my favorite was A Princess Does Her Laundry. Mm -hmm. uh, and so talk, talk a little bit about some of these other female characters who have power but are, are seen as very positive. Yes, yeah, so, so um, a prin the princess is Princess Nausicaa. So Odysseus spends um, a good chunk of the inset books in which he's wandering um, on the way back from Troy to Ithaca with the Phaeacians who um, involve both Nausicaa and her apparently very powerful mom, Ariti, who packs her a lovely lunch before she goes <laughs> off to the... <laughs> she's, she's a good mom. Yeah. <laughs> and also a, a good um, figure of the apparently quasi-matriarchal society of Scaria. Um, so I guess the, 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 the books in which Odysseus is, is neither at Troy nor in Ithaca present us both with the um, hostile goddesses like Scylla and Charybdis, but also the positive people, uh, positive female helpers who include, of course, Athena, Circe, Calypso, to some extent, um, but then also the divine, uh, the, the human characters of Nausicaa, who helps him and is clearly would marry him if it was if he were available. She definitely um, has a crush on him. She definitely <laughs> has a crush, and it's, um, it's. I think it's also a way that the poem can explore these different stages in Odysseus's life, but that we see him with a with his with the older wife once he gets back. But we get to see him also at the courtship stage when he's chatting up Nausicaa. Yeah. <laughs> you know, th that he gives her a long and maybe quite slightly creepy speech in which, <laughs> <laughs> which he's um, you know, telling her how amazingly beautiful she is and he's never seen anyone as beautiful as her. And it, and it works because it means that he gets, he gets her help. Um, <laughs> 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 Wonderful. Um, so 
one of the things you and I have, have talked a couple different times, which is really exciting, and, we're, and we have another couple events coming up, um, but, but one of the things that we talked about early on is how um, oftentimes people have focused on you as sort of a female translator, um, which can be frustrating. You know, al although it's a wonderful milestone, it can also be frustrating because it's also you're a brilliant translator, full stop. <laughs> um, how has that continued to sort of be something that, that people talk about? How has that continued to unfold? Because, you know, that's a, that's a sort of marketing thing that I think publishers love to say because yeah. it gets people's attention. It gets people to look at the book and sort of, oh, another odyssey, what's the hook? Yeah. Um, but how has that sort of continued to unfold? It's definitely still there. I mean, it's definitely, I've done quite a lot of talks with the last few months and it definitely, ev very often I get introduced with female Emily Wilson, yes. and. <laughs> on, some level, <laughs> on some level, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I think it's a good thing that we should be talking about gender in the Odyssey, and we should also be talking about gender in our society and the ways that having a particular gender identity can affect any kind of work, and whether it's writing a novel or writing journalism or writing history or writing, in writing criticism or doing translations. It, it affects things. Um, I guess I get anxious about the fact that... Um, I think it can imply some erasure because, of course, I'm not the only female homerist. I mean, I've learned a lot from other scholars, including other women scholars, mm -hmm. um, and, and including feminist scholarship on the Odyssey. Um, so I don't, want it, it, I don't want it to be part of the presentation of this one female hero and then everybody else, let's forget about them. <laughs> That's not cool. Yeah. And also that, of course, I'm not the only woman to have published a translation of the Odyssey. There are plenty of those out there in other languages. Mm -hmm. So I think it should be that the... The headline really should be, why is classical translation so male-dominated in the English-speaking world, mm. rather than, why am I a woman? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but I, I, I guess the, the other thing that frustrates me is, why don't we ask men about their gender? You know, That in fact, uh, when I, as I've been looking at other translations of the Odyssey, by men, I notice a lot of things which seem to me to, ha to possibly have something to do with the translator's gender. Um, but I also know that Robert Fagels, Robert Fitzgerald, Sonny Lombardo, I've read interviews by them, and nobody ever said, you're a male translator. Let's yeah. ask you about the male characters <laughs> and about your masculine perspective and how unique that is. <laughs> <laughs> right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many of you have read uh, Lauren Groff or that feature in the New York Times by the book. Mm -hmm. um, so the by the book, Lauren Groff, uh, who is a terrific novelist and, and short storyist, her her book out that's out right now is a collection of short stories called Florida, um, which is terrific. But she had noted that oftentimes male authors, when they are interviewed for By the Book in the New York Times, list almost entirely male authors in the books that they recommend and the books that were important to them. So when she was asked to do it, she listed only female authors um, as sort of a point of protest. And when people asked her, how do you balance um, having children with being an author, she said, I'm Respectfully, I'm not going to answer that until I hear you ask a male, uh, a male novelist that. Yeah, yeah. good for her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's see. the The last thing I, I sort of wanted to ask you. Um, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to ask this because this is sort of what everyone wants to know. What are you working on now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm doing the Iliad. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> I'm I cannot wait. <laughs> um, so uh, how are we doing on time? Is now a good time to go to the audience? Yeah. Terrific. Okay, now it's your turn. All right, if you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll come around with the mic. Sorry, right here in the back.
had the opportunity to read the first page, but I thought the opening line was very interesting. I'm going to paraphrase it. Let me tell you about a complicated man. Sort of uh, bring you right into the interiority or the psychological point of view. Wasn't what I recollected usually happens in the classical translation. So I thought about the question is, you know, what had you approached the first line? What made you choose that opening first line compared to maybe the epic opening of Milton or 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 of the Iliad? Mm -hmm. Right. So um, the first line is Andra moi enepe musa polutropon hosmala polla. Um, so it starts with the word Andra, man. I went through multiple different drafts to try and see if I could start with the word man, but I, I just I couldn't do it because it always sounded like man, <laughs> epic poem coming up. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> uh, so that wasn't good. And I, sorry, th then I figured I'm going to have an emphatic position by putting the word man at the end of the line instead. Um, so as I was saying a minute ago, Odysseus has many epithets, and many of them have to do with his manyness. So he's polutropos in the first line, which is a word that suggests much turniness. I wasn't going to use much turniness because it's not a real word. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to try and think of words in English that have to do with um, layeredness, twistedness, turningness. We know from later Greek that the word polutropos is used of situations as well as people. So it seems to me that in the first line of the Odyssey, Choosing that epithet is a programmatic choice. It's a way of saying something about the nature of the narrative you're about to encounter, as well as the protagonist. So, so I wanted a word that in English would suggest something which could be about this poem, this story, as well as about who is this person that we're going to get to know here. Um, I, I went through multiple different words that are real English words that have that metaphor, have some metaphor of turned or turniness, but they all have the wrong connotations. Like Kinky, perverted. Yeah. It's not. I just didn't want to go that far towards um, vilifying Odysseus in a particular way. It was, it was, <laughs> it was too narrow in its connotation. Tell me about a kinky man. <laughs> yes, <yeah>. Also, it <laughs> doesn't scan, so that's not good. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I went through multiple different possibilities, and it was sort of decided for me by the fact that I wanted something which would both have something like the metaphor of the original and also be a definitely um, real English word. So complicated, it, it comes from um, plecto to, fo to fold. So it, it was a sense of something weaving back on itself or folded in it. I'm conscious that it, it, does, it does sound possibly more interior, right? It sounds like it's something about the nature of his character. I think it's not clear right from the start that it's also about the nature of his journey. But I hope that readers can understand that as they maybe go back and reread that it's also about the journey. Question in the back? Okay, this is, this is working now. Okay, so I'm, I'm working on a project and it sees me revisiting Phaedrus, uh, one of my favorites, uh, Plato's uh, work on love. And so I'm reading it and then like, they're saying love like every five words basically. And I'm reading it in English obviously, I, have, I, I can't touch the Greek, but I'm like, what were they actually saying? What, what specific concepts of love is he actually talking about? So anecdotally, um, I asked the internet uh, <laughs> about books uh, that, that talk about Greek concepts of love, and the one was Greeks and Greek Love by James Davidson, Davidson yes. and uh, the other was Circe. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. Yeah, so fir <laughs> first I wanted to know if you feel like that's a fair uh, appraisal of, of your work, and then also I wanted to open up the question to both of you. Uh, 
you know, not a lot of, I don't think a lot of Americans are talking about how different Greek concepts of love and just how the word love is not really, doesn't really do it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, if you have any recommendations that I could dive into all of that, I would love that. So um, the, the Phaedrus, um, like the symposium, is about eros. So there are different Greek terms for love. The eros is sexual desire kind of love. It's yearning for, for a beloved for to whom you're sexually attractive, tr attracted. It's not the family, kinship, household kind of love, which is philia. Um, so like as in Philadelphia, right? That, that in fact, Philadelphia is in, in Egypt is based on the fact that the Egyptian kings and queens were brothers and sisters, but uh, we, can, we can bracket <laughs> that. <laughs> so there are different concepts of love, and there are different types of love, which in ancient Greek have different words for them. So the eros kind of love is about desire. And I think in the, in the Phaedrus, there's this whole intertwining of the desire to write, the desire to tell the truth, the desire to find the truth, and also the desire for actual human beings. That, of course, Plato was interested in what is what's the um, relationship of your desire for a sexually attractive person to your desire for a text or your desire for knowledge. Um, I feel like we're getting very far away from the Odyssey there. <laughs> maybe we could tie it back somehow. Um, I mean, I, I think that maybe we can tie it to the Sirens episode. Of course, they're not um, they're not talking about eros, they're, but they're promising a uh, the satisfaction of a kind of desire for which I think there's no. Um, there's no real word in Greek, right? There's that Plato was trying to invent a, a, a word for what the sirens promised with, the, with um, developing the word philosophia, philosophy. That they're, they're offering the satisfaction of your desire to know everything, your desire for the internet, basically. Which <laughs> is <good>. <laughs> <laughs> um, specifically, uh, in terms of Circe, I, I actually didn't want it to be um, a, a novel that was based around eros, the sexual desire, although there is some of that in there. Um, just as Odysseus you know, sleeps his way across the Mediterranean, I wanted Circe to be able to have lovers as well. And, but you know, Song of Achilles was more focused on, on eros and, and sort of that you know, partner, partnered love. Um, but in Circe, I, I actually wanted to bring out, uh, I'm not sure there's really a word for this either, um, but a love for vocation that, you know, techne, skill, um, being, being good at something, at craft that, that you're making is, is really important to Circe's character and to her journey, um, and that she is extremely passionate about her work, um, and that, that, that that's a really important piece, and she also, you know, then I brought in other types of love, sort of the lover, of she, she has a son at one point, and so, sh you know, you see the parental love, um, and also friendship, that friendship and, and sort of finding her family um, because her family of origin is horrendous. Um, eventually she you know, has to find this other family and so, so where can you put, she has a lot of love in her, um, where can she put that? You know, who is worthy of that love? Question off to the side. Hi, so I'm, I'm working on a paper where I'm kind of arguing that as a culture we've like misidentified the Greeks as the heroes in the Trojan War, and especially like in the Odyssey, the Amulet, we see these Greek characters, sorry, we see these like Greek heroes um, that we consider culturally heroes, seeing do these, seeing these really horrible, like indefensible things. What do you kind of make of the fact that our culture, like Western civilization kind of glosses over all the terrible things we see Greek characters do in the myths? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, uh, I think this whole 
valorizing of toxic masculinity is really a problem, right? I mean, <laughs> that's, 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 that's what, it's, what it's about. I mean, I, I think it's, it's funny how um, so, so often people want me to talk about um, what is femininity in the Odyssey. And I think the Odyssey also has a lot to say about agenoria, which is the um, archaic Greek term for excessive masculinity and of, of the ways that there's something really damaging about having this um, desire to kill, desire to dominate, which is essential for being a good warrior. Being the quote-unquote best of the Achaeans means being the best at killing as many different human beings as you possibly can. And it's not that either the Iliad or the Odyssey is saying, we want a society in which everyone is genocidal. In fact, they're not saying that. They're suggesting that the war is, of course, something which is part of every human culture. But, it, but the kind of people who are the best on the battlefield are really challenging people. And, and they're complicated people. They create these complicated scenarios. Um, Yes, I, I'm not sure if I can sum, sum up the whole of Western civilization for you, but good luck with the paper. <laughs> <laughs> Got a question in the yeah. second row. Hi. Hi. Um, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but I was hoping you could expand on it a little bit more. Um, so I was wondering how uh, your uh, feminine identity um, has separated your translation from the male-centric translations, and on the other side of that, how male-centric translations have separated themselves from the text of the original. Right, I mean, I guess I don't think I could have answered this question like, as soon as my translation came out, because as I said, I wasn't sort of look, doing my work thinking, let me compare my, what I might do to 10 other translations. But si as I said, since, I, since it has come out, I've gone back and looked at some passages next of mine next to other people's, and I, and I definitely noticed some some trends which, which seem like they have something to do with gender. Um, so an, a, an obvious example is the moment when, we'd already talked about this, when Telemachus um, insists that even though Odysseus says, go hang, go, go hack the life out of the slaves who were raped by the suitors with long swords, Telemachus instead says they have to be killed by hanging. And on my reading, I think what he's saying is, these women are a source of shame to me and my father, their bodies are tainted by having been owned by the wrong owners. So as long as they're alive, remembering the wrong owners, they're going to be a reminder to us that this house wasn't always completely ours, so they need to die. Um, in not one, but something like five of the translations I've looked at, there's importation of misogynistic language, like Telemachus says things like, you sluts, you whores, which isn't, there isn't anything in the Greek which corresponds to that. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure why, if we had those translators here, what they would they say about why did you put the word sluts in there when it wasn't in the original? They might, they might have an answer, um, but I, I think it's just notable that they did that. Um, and then I guess on, uh, I think there are also sort of more subtle things just about multiple perspectives being present and also that, that it isn't all through the eyes of Odysseus, which I really don't think it is. Um, so for instance, that there's a tendency to, I, I think in the, in translations of book five, when Odysseus is leaving Calypso, um, in English, a, num a nymph, it has a particular set of connotations. If you called Calypso not a goddess, super powerful female being, but nymph, you can then bring in all these connotations of she's a nympho, she's hysterical, she's crazy, here she is being dumped, and here are her crazy operatic monologues about being dumped. And then here's the sensible man who's trying to get away from this awful person. And I think quite a lot of the translations I've looked at are putting in something of that in a way that I don't think is there in the original. I think in the original, Calypso is very powerful. 
and the things she says are perfectly sensible. There's nothing particularly weird or wrong about them. She, ma she has good criticisms of the double standards on Olympus. Um, so I guess I, mean I come up with other, other examples, but that kind of thing. Yeah. Other questions, second row. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, if you don't follow Emily Wilson on Twitter, if you're a Twitter person, I would highly recommend <laughs> it because oftentimes <laughs> she'll she posts sort of different versions of um, of translations and talks yeah. talks I through. I wrote them. about the, the 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 hanged women on Twitter. over when I'm done. <laughs> uh, thank you both for that. That was really great. Uh, so something that I'm kind of curious about is, and obviously, oh, sorry, is this better? <laughs> um, of course, you both had already acknowledged like the constant annotation of like a female translator, um, a woman translator. And something that I'm kind of interested in is obviously like in ancient society, uh, like the social constructs of like what womanhood was, like what it was to be like gens, like uh, masculinity, femininity, mm -hmm. uh, just like obviously didn't align with the social constructs that we have today. I mean, like as social constructs around the world are also like dissonant. Mm -hmm. And um, so of course it's like really complicated to write like female and woman like characters because even though like, um, like anatomy may be convertible, like the social constructions of them uh, completely weren't and um so sort of in that vein a character that i'm really curious about is athena mm -hmm. um because in so many ways she uh sort of is and has been described as like in all ways uh but bo but body as like male whereas like her mind has been very masculinized mm -hmm. in a lot of ways uh so I'm, I'm curious in how that informed the way that that you wrote athena mm -hmm. That you like conveyed that that translation. Interesting. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you. There's something really fascinating about Athena's um, maybe non-binary or like different gender identities that she's she's constantly in the poem when she's incarnate and and appearing to different humans. She's very often male. Not always. There's that, that one moment when she turns into a very seductive woman to reveal herself to Odysseus when they're having their lovely flirtatious exchange. But um, most of the time, she's she turns into a, into a man. Um, I mean, I think Athena's a, an interesting character because it's sort of not, even though I was saying so great to be Athena when I was eight, she, it's not clear that she's 100% um, good as a feminist icon, right? That she's, of course, um, her mother, Metis, cunning, in cunning intelligence, is the, is the one whose child was said to be, um, to, to risk being more powerful than the father's use. So Zeus got around that issue by swallowing the mother, and then Athena's born from the head of Zeus. So she, she then becomes um, sort of emblem and instantiation of female intelligence, female sneakiness and cunning that's then always in the service of patriarchal male power. And of course, like the, the fact that Athena and Odysseus have so much in common also makes them like counterparts, that they're both um, like gender ambiguous in certain ways and also both um, even even though they have this gender ambiguity, they both have this sneaky, weaving, cunning, underhandedness. Um, but then it's always in the service of masculine kingship. That ultimately, it's the the goal is a household in which a guy is in charge. Um, so I'm not sure that that says uh, that I can give you details about the translation challenges. I mean, I guess I found Athena hard to write in terms of how much am I going to make her a coherent character? Because I wanted, I wanted the characters all to feel 
coherent and thought through, but she's constantly different. She's constantly on in different disguises. I mean, I think what, one of the big through, through lines is that she's Glaucopis Athena. She has the bright eyes. And I think the noticingness that, that whatever's happening anywhere, she's on it, and she already knows five steps ahead of what's going to happen. That's always there. And then what she's going to do about it, it's, it's going to involve some kind of transformation. Yeah. When I, when I uh, explain, talk to my students about Athena, mm -hmm. a lot of what I talk about is the concept of she is the mind of Zeus mm -hmm. because she so often goes out and does mm -hmm. those different things. I also really like the thing about the nymphs that you had in Circe, well, they're so easy, that Hermes says they're so easy to catch. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of neat. But <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think gender is one of the things that goes on that I love about the Odyssey. But another thing is so much of the nuance of class that is not in the Iliad. Like the Iliad is very much like mm -hmm. there are noble people and there are not noble people and there isn't that sort of like in-between moment mm -hmm. as much as there is with the Odyssey. So I, I have to say I recommend your translation mm -hmm. to all my students because, you know, it's first of all, it's much more rapid than any other. You know, most of the translations give like, five lines for every, I mean, uh, like, mm. some it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and you're just, like, racing through with Homer, which is awesome. And then the other thing, it, but you do well, I mean, obviously the gender thing we've been talking about, but the class thing as well. Yeah. And um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, kind of maybe with the way Odysseus is noble, but not really, like, he's not from the Peloponnesus, mm. he's not, mm -hmm. you know, he's not, you know, and then even Telemachus, when he goes to see Menelaus, and Menelaus is mm. like, you want these horses? <laughs> and Telemachus is like, I live on a really crappy island. <laughs> I can't have horses. Yeah. And then down to the point where, you know, like, Eumaeus, and the way that, how endearing Odysseus is to Eumaeus, when mm. he says, like, you, and, he, and that's the only, like, second person, you know, addressing mm. that comes mm. out. So I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the class issue, mm. too. Yes. So maybe bef before I get to that, I just want to flag about the rapidity. My translation is the same length as the original, which of course I did on purpose. It didn't, didn't just happen that way because I, I noticed that there's of course a tendency for any translator to be to make your translation longer than the original. You always know this word means 200 different things, so let me put down five and just cover my bases, and then you end up with something that's half as long again. And it, I just knew that part of the Part of why I like the Odyssey so much is that it's so, so propulsive in the storytelling. You always actually want to get to the next thing because you're not bored of where you are. Um, so th that's all in brackets. Um, yes, I think, that I think the Odyssey is super interesting about class. I mean, in the Iliad, we get the one scene in which Odysseus beats up the common soldier, Thersitis, for getting out of hand. So he's the, the representative of um, aristocratic warrior privilege. And let me show you how we treat those those commoner so soldiers, we just beat them up and then they stand in line and then we'll all stand around looking great. Um, but then in the Odyssey, we have a much more complex depiction of class. I mean, partly because, um, as you say, Odysseus himself is, is living in this poor, barren, uh, heading back to the poor, barren island away from the luxuries of life, either with Calypso or in the palace of Alcinous, these fertile and clearly economically much more privileged places than where he's going back to. But then also that, um, of course, once Odysseus is back in Ithaca, he spends most, uh, most of the time until the cusp of book 21, book 22, in disguise as a homeless migrant. 
So that allows the poet to explore like, what is it to be in this, in this socially unprivileged position. Is it a test of a, good, of a good person or of a good household, a good community, that you can take care of the, the foreigner in need, the migrant, the immigrant? Like what do we do with the people who show up at our doors? If we're not nice people, we, we don't welcome them. But I think the poem is also, I mean, we can talk about gender double standards, but I think the, it's really interesting in its exploration of class double standards as well. Because um, in book, eight, book 18, Odysseus has an encounter with a, with a real homeless person, Iris the, 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 the beggar. And um, the fact that Odysseus is not actually a real homeless person proves his superiority. And he beats up the real homeless person and makes fun of him. And that shows that that's what you should do with real homeless people. The, the homeless people you like are the ones who are either disguised elite warriors or disguised gods. And we like those ones because they're only temporarily desperate and homeless and poor. But the ones who are not like that, we get rid of them. And I think there are also interesting double standards about Eumaeus too, right? That he's, he's the ideal slave. He's the ideal because he's totally um, willing to give up on his own um, lost parents and that he's willing to present his terrible story about being trafficked into slavery as happy ending. My, the person who bought me was really nice. <laughs> it's also presented as both we're sort of supposed to buy that ending and we're also not. And I think that there's something horrifying about the way Odysseus responds to that, this terrible story of being trafficked into slavery by saying, yeah, I guess you had it bad, but I had it even worse. You know, that we're, we're supposed to imagine that the temporary suffering of the elite is sort of worse than lifelong slavery, but we also can see that it's not really. You know, it's realistic. That's, that's how it feels to be elite, right? I mean, I think we, we're all elite in our, in our society. We all come up with these different dodges to, to get away with, think, with inhabiting our particular subject positions as dominant over others. Yeah. So sadly, we are running out of time, so we have time for just one last question in the fourth row. Thank you. My question is about the technical aspects. How do you approach writing this poem? Do you begin at the beginning and then at the end? <laughs> Do you start somewhere in the middle and try and weave it all back and forth together? I started in the middle because I did, um, I told you I read the read book nine as a sort of sample. So I did a sample of book nine. And then I thought I'm already in the middle. I should just do, the, do all the wandering books. So I did the Phaeacian books. I did six, seven, eight, nine first. <laughs> and then it was the, I, I teach at the University of Pennsylvania. They have a humanities forum with a particular theme each year. So then it was the year of violence. So I, so I, did, the year, I did book 22, because it's the most violent. Um, and then I went back to the beginning. And I did a lot, of, a lot of revisions of all of it, but especially the ones I'd done earlier on, I had to do three times as much rewriting as I did for later ones. Um, yeah. Can we give a huge round of applause for Emily and Madeline? <laughs>